Please take your copy of God's Word and open it to Matthew 18, verses 5 through 14. Today's sermon is a continuation of our series entitled, Seeing and Savoring Jesus Christ. Most of you already know, but some may not, that this sermon series is a verse-by-verse, chronological walk through the earthly life and ministry of our Lord Jesus using all four Gospels, meaning that we are harmonizing the Gospels. So, by the end of this series, which will still be a while off, um, we will have effectively preached through all four Gospels. Now, we do periodically break away from the Seeing and Savoring series to do another series through another book because we want to give the congregation a, a, a rounded diet of God's Word. And we will make that shift again, Lord willing, this September. But for now, for today, we are in Matthew 18. Now, I'll remind you that this chapter, chapter 18, began with Jesus having to um, correct his disciples' concept of, and in the process, our concept of, greatness. Man defines greatness um, as those who rise to the top, who take no prisoners, who win the gold. Man's definition of greatness is one whereby people receive applause and accolades and gain power and prestige. And that's the concept of greatness that was the motivating factor behind the disciples' decision to come to Jesus with a question about who was the greatest in the kingdom. And when we look at the Synoptic Gospels side by side, we see that these guys asked this question because they selfishly wanted the inside track on positions of power within the kingdom. But Jesus taught them a lesson on leadership that totally flipped man's concept of greatness on its head. His lesson was this. He had them bring a a little child and he tells them that the truly great person in the kingdom is the one who is willing to humble himself as a child. Meaning that he is willing to take on the status of a child. And a child in that day and age was an absolute nobody, was nothing. So unless we humble ourselves and become as nobodies, We not only won't be great, according to Jesus, we won't even enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, what we saw in last week's, in Jesus' words last week, was that truly great people first have transformed hearts, secondly have humble minds, and finally have open hands. The first two dealt with the nature of a truly great person, and the last one with the actions of a truly great person. Truly great people are called to be nobodies, for the sake of Christ, but also we are called to minister to the other nobodies who are part of the kingdom for the sake of Christ. We are called to love and to care for God's little ones, God's children. And so today's text continues that focus on how we treat and care for God's children. Thus, I want us to to read and and shortly revisit verses 5 and 6, even though those verses were included in last week's sermon. So a reminder that in verses 5 and 6, Jesus is now using the the phrase little children to refer not primarily to biological, natural children, but to his disciples, spiritual children. We need to remember that as we walk through today's text. So please stand now, if you would, as we read today's text, Matthew chapter 18. Again, we're backing up to verse 5, and we'll read all the way down to verse 14. This is God's Word, so we stand in the honor of reading it. The word of the Lord says, Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. But whoever causes one of these little ones who believes in me to sin, it would be better for him to have a great millstone fastened around his neck and be drowned into the depth of the sea. 
Woe to the world for temptations to sin. For it is necessary that temptations come, but woe to the one by whom the temptation comes. And if your hand or your foot causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It's better for you to enter life crippled or lame than with two hands or two feet to be thrown into the eternal fire. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out, throw it away. It is better for you to enter life with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into the hell of fire. See that you do not despise one of these little ones. For I tell you that in heaven their angels always see the face of my Father who is in heaven. What do you think? If a man has a hundred sheep and one of them has gone astray, does he not leave the ninety-nine on the mountains and go in search of the one that went astray? And if he finds it, truly I say to you, he rejoices over it more than over the ninety-nine that never went astray. So, it is not the will of my Father who is in heaven that one of these little ones should perish. Let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for your gracious word to us and your words of warning, as we have here in this text, are very much gracious words. If we did not have your warnings, then we would simply be people who would be led astray by our own flesh. But instead we have serious, grave words from the lips of Jesus himself. And so, Father, we thank you for these words. We pray that you would give us ears to hear them, give, a, give me a mouth to speak them. But, Lord, I pray that you would also give us hearts to respond to them and to make changes in our lives accordingly. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. All right, I have, for an illustration this morning, something. Kids, what is this? It's a big old what? What? Brick. It's kind of a brick. It's a, it's a rock, okay? A big old heavy rock right here, and it's actually a landscaping rock. So it's kind of, kind of flat, um, and it's, it was to be used for a variety of different landscaping projects. This at one time was part of a section of rocks that came uh, out of a small walkway off of our deck in our house, and, and it was there, it was, it was, a, it was a little uh, landing set off of the walkway to be able to, I mean, off of the deck in order to step off of the deck easily. But, but some of those rocks got played with by, by some of my kids and other kids that play in the backyard. And, and eventually they were yanked up from that spot and were used for other purposes. The kids even placed a bunch of them in the yard in a circle to create a pretend fire pit. At least I think that's what they were creating. Well, late one night when I was walking in the backyard to the shed to get something, I came into contact with one of those rocks. I don't know if it was this one. But I came into contact with a rock like this. I should say my big toe came into contact with a rock like this. And I stubbed my toe and I tripped. And I probably, maybe, got a little bit angry. These rocks, which were originally intended to be stepping stones, had become stumbling blocks. When used correctly, they were helpful to help me step onto my deck. But when used incorrectly... They became hurtful, causing me to stumble in my yard. In today's text, Jesus is dealing with the problem of stumbling blocks in the church amongst his people. The Bible says in 1 Peter 2.5, and I know this is in a different context when he talks to us about being living stones. He says that we are living stones. We are being built up as a spiritual house. So I kind of want to pose the question, what kind of stones are we? We can either be stepping stones that edify and help and assist others in the body 
Stones that are willing to be made low and stepped on and in doing so exhibit true greatness that we spoke of last week. Or we can be stumbling blocks that insist on our own way, that put our needs above others, that exercise freedom without consideration of others, and to bring division and harm to the body. Now, in the context of today's passage, we need to remember that Jesus has already talked about stumbling blocks or stumbling stones. Back in chapter 17, verse 27, Jesus paid the temple tax so as to, as it says in the ESV, not to give offense to them, them being the Jewish leaders and the tax collectors. And that verb, give offense, is the Greek word, if you'll remember, skandalizo, from which we get our English word, scandalize. And in the Greek, it literally means to cause one to stumble. That's what the word means. So in that passage, Jesus declares that he and his disciples are free from the temple tax. But Jesus would not allow that freedom to be a stumbling block to the Jews. And thus be a hindrance to the gospel. Now in the context of today's passage, Jesus is talking about not causing any of God's children to stumble. Any of our fellow Christians to stumble. That word for stumbling block, skandalizo, as I mentioned earlier, is all over today's text, although you may not see it. That's because the word translated in the ESV uh, as sin, if you look at your text here, you'll see the word sin mentioned several times. Uh, it translates that word skandalizo. The ESV chose to, to, to translate that word skandalizo as sin. And I think that's unfortunate because by simply generically calling skandalizo sin, we may miss the unique focus of today's text. Later in chapter 18, in verse 15, Jesus will again talk about sin, but that time he does use the generic word for sin, hamartia. But in this section we are studying today, the verb to sin literally should be translated to stumble. And the noun, temptations to sin, is literally rendered cause to stumble. So I personally think that the New American Standard Version is actually better on this text, and it sheds better light on this text. So I want to read the NASB translation of this text, and you can look at your Bible and follow along as I'm reading it so you can see the differences, okay? So I'm going to read the New American Standard Version, and you read along in the ESV or whatever translation you have, and you'll see where the differences are. Verse 5, And whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. But whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to stumble, there's that word, scandalizo, it'd be better for him to have a heavy millstone hung around his neck and to be drowned in the depth of the sea. Verse 7. Woe to the world because of its stumbling blocks. It's translated in the ESV as temptations to sin, but the Greek word is the noun, skandalon, which is related to the verb skandalizo. So just like scandal is related to the word scandalize, and so the proper rendering there is stumbling blocks. Let's continue. For it is inevitable that stumbling blocks, same word, come. But woe to that man through whom the stumbling block comes. Verse 8. If your hand or your foot causes you to stumble, there's that word again, scandalizo. Cut it off and throw it from you. It is better for you to enter life crippled or lame than to have two hands or two feet and be cast into the eternal fire. And if your eye causes you to stumble, same word again, pluck it out and throw it from you. It is better for you to enter life with one eye than to have two eyes and be cast into the fiery hell. So the ESV is not technically wrong to translate scandalizo as sin, for to stumble is to stumble in our walk is to sin. But I think that the passage has a particular flavor to it that is lost if we simply use the word sin. 
I think we may miss what Jesus is communicating about relationships within the body if we don't get that stumbling block image in our mind. We need to have that image of a stumbling block in our minds as we read this text. And I think there are three action points that we can take from what Jesus says about stumbling blocks. Number one, we must heed Jesus' words of sober warning. We must heed Jesus' words of sober warning. Matthew 18, verse 5. Whoever receives one such child, and that's referring back to believers, in my name receives me. Okay, we looked at that portion of the verse last week. Remember, whatever we do to the least of these, we do unto Jesus. So how we treat God's children is is gravely important. Verse 6. But whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, that is to stumble, it'd be better for him to have a great millstone fastened around his neck and to be drowned in the depth of the sea. Now, as I said, we touched on this last week, but we need to to mention it again. This is a dire, dire warning from Jesus. If you have to choose between facing the judgment of God for having caused his little ones to stumble or being drowned in the sea, choose the latter. The image that Jesus paints is genuinely terrifying, and we need to understand that. We We need a godly fear stirred up in us. Millstones were heavy, circular stones used to grind grain. You've probably seen pictures of them. But there were two different types of millstones used in Jesus' day. There were small millstones that people had in their homes to grind wheat in their own home. But then there were large, great millstones usually used to grind corn that had to be spun by a donkey. Perhaps you've seen a picture of a donkey spinning a millstone. We know that Jesus is speaking of the, the bigger stone, the latter one here, uh, the bigger millstone, because in the Greek, Jesus literally says this, it would be better for him to have a donkey millstone fastened around his neck. The ESV translators, as well as the other English translators, uh, translate donkey as great because it kind of closes the cultural gap for us. Thank you. So just translating it great helps kind of close. I think people are probably wondering, what, what's a donkey millstone? But that, that's, we know it's the bigger millstone because it literally says the donkey millstone. So there's no question what Jesus is trying to communicate. This is a big stone. So Jesus is communicating to us that the status of the person who causes a child of God to stumble is not good. Matter of fact, the sentence is firm. The outcome is not in question. You can't swim back to the top with a donkey millstone fixed around your neck. You can't swim back. You're stuck. The judgment is dire and decisive. That's how Jesus feels about anyone who leads any of his little children, his sheep, his brothers and sisters, his people into sin. Now at this point I think we need to to see that the sin of causing uh, someone to stumble deals more than just the issues of Christian freedom that we talked about back when we studied the end of chapter 17. Yes, our Christian freedom should be exercised in a manner whereby we do not cause others to violate their consciences. And we must understand that our freedom is not for us, but for the edification of the body. But there are many ways that we can cause our brothers and sisters in Christ to stumble. Gossip. Slander. Haughtiness. uh, Dangerous doctrines. Stubbornness. Lack of teachability, and on and on and on. There are a variety of ways that people can cause others to stumble, but all stumbling blocks cause harm and division to the church, and God hates it. We know that God hates division in the body. We can read about that in Proverbs 6, verse 16. Let me read these words to you. Verse 16 through 19. There are six things that the Lord hates, seven that are an abomination to him. Haughty eyes, 
A lying tongue, a hand that sheds innocent blood, a heart that devises wicked plans, feet that make haste to run to evil, a false witness who breathes out lies, and here's the last one, and one who sows discord among the brothers. Romans 16, verse 17, I appeal to you, brothers, to watch out for those who cause divisions and create obstacles contrary to the doctrine that you have been taught. Avoid them, for such persons do not serve our Lord Jesus Christ, but their own appetites, and by smooth talk and flattery, they deceive the hearts of the naive. God hates division, and thus he also hates quarrels within the body. 2 Timothy 2, verse 14, Remind them of these things and charge them before God not to quarrel about words which do no good, but only ruins, listen to that language, only ruins the hearers. Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. But avoid irreverent babble, for it will lead people into more and more ungodliness. Listen to the stumbling stones in some of these texts. They create obstacles to good doctrine. They deceive the naive. They ruin those who hear them. They lead people into more and more ungodliness. Paul, like our Lord Jesus, loves the body too much to put up with any of these things. So he says in Titus, the passage that Dima read earlier, I'm going to read the last few verses of that. He says this, avoid foolish controversies, genealogies, dissensions, and quarrels about the law, for they, un- they are unprofitable and worthless. As for a person who stirs up division after warning him once and then twice, have nothing more to do with him. And listen to this, verse 11. Knowing that such a person is warped and sinful He is self-condemned. He is self-condemned. Do we not see that how we treat God's little ones, how we treat our fellow believers in Christ, how we treat our brothers and sisters has eternal consequences? If you are one who consistently, unrepentantly causes others to stumble, then the evidence is that you are not truly saved and you are thus self-condemned. So watch out for a donkey stone is about to be hung around your neck, dragging you to an ocean floor. And that's a better fate than what a just and angry Heavenly Father has in store for those who hurt His little ones. God is zealous over His people. And Jesus doesn't let up in this passage. Next, He pronounces a word of woe. A woe is a proclamation of judgment. A woe for those who lead people into sin. First, a word of woe in general to the world. He says this, woe to the world for temptations to sin. Again, I like the, the NAS, NASB better. Woe to the world for its, because of its stumbling blocks. This fallen world and its systems and its ethics are already under condemnation. For the world is filled with rebellion against a holy God. And thus, there are plenty of stumbling blocks in this world. Plenty of stumbling blocks that this world puts forth. And Jesus acknowledges that. Jesus even says, for it is necessary that temptations come. Jesus is saying that his disciples should not be surprised by temptations and stumbling blocks that come from the world. These are inevitable. They will happen. This necessity here does not imply divine compulsion, but rather that sin itself is under the umbrella of God's absolute sovereignty, whereby he uses even the sins of man to accomplish his perfect plans. Examples abound in the scriptures, but let me just mention one. God ordained and used Judas, Judas's willful rebellion against Jesus for God's own glorious gospel purposes. Jesus himself said in Mark 14, verse 21, where the Son of Man goes as it is written of him. And in other words, according to God's plan. 
But woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. That's the willful sin of Judas. It would be better for that man if he had not been born. So Jesus says that the world is, a, is expected to cause people to stumble. Matter of fact, it's necessary. But then Jesus shifts from the world generally to specific people. Woe to the one by whom the temptation comes. And with that statement, he is returning to the words of condemnation towards those who, despite claiming to be Christians, put stumbling blocks in front of other Christians and thereby prove themselves to actually be of the world. Now let me say also that in regards to stumbling and sin in the church, God is still sovereign. He is sovereign over division and dissension, believe it or not. He can and does simultaneously hate it and yet use it to further his purposes. So we read in 1 Corinthians eleven eighteen. This is what Paul said. I hear that there are divisions among you. And I believe it in part. Listen to this. For there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. So, so there does come dissension into the body. Division in the church. And God actually uses it so that the true believers can come to the surface. Many of you know, if you don't know, you probably know soon that Noah headed off this week. It's been a challenging week for us. He headed off to boot camp. And he's going to face a lot of strife in boot camp. And um, the reason that they ordain the strife for those guys is so the real Marines can come to the surface. So division in the church, though sinful and very much hated by God, is still in some mysterious way necessary under the sovereign design of God, a design for the church's good and for God's glory. That in no way makes division and strife right or good or acceptable, but we need to simply rest in the fact that God can allow it for his purposes and still hate it. So Jesus says, woe to the one by whom temptation or stumbling blocks come. And if God hates it, we should hate it too. And that brings me to my next point this morning. We must hear Jesus' call for a serious fight. A serious fight. We need to take division, stumbling blocks in the church seriously. Now, these next words sound very familiar to you. We've heard them before. Heard something very similar before. Verse 8. And if your hand or your foot causes you to sin or stumble, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life crippled or lame than to have two hands and two feet be thrown into the eternal fire. And if your eye causes you to sin, stumble, tear it out and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life with one eye than with two eyes and to be thrown into the hell of fire. This sounds a whole lot like Jesus' words that we already studied in Matthew chapter 5, verses 29 through 30. Now first, let me just say, the fact that Jesus uses similar illustrations twice shouldn't cause any trouble to any of us in here. Some commentators struggle with the similarity of this text and the one in Matthew 5 and and, and unnecessarily assume that Matthew uh, is taking that teaching and for his own purposes artificially inserting it here in this passage. But all good teachers repeat themselves and sometimes they use illustrations or analogies repeatedly and even use them in different contexts with slightly different applications. I do that all the time. When I'm counseling different people, sometimes I'll say, I'll use all kinds of different illustrations, and I almost always have to preface that with, now, you may have heard this before, I may have said this to you before, and if I did, I'm sorry, but it's because I repeat a lot of illustrations when I'm talking to people and teaching, and, and even up here, you've heard me repeat 
many times, different illustrations. In the Matthew 5 context, Jesus spoke of cutting out eyes and cutting off hands following his teaching on sexual immorality to show how seriously we should take sexual sin. And so when he uses an almost identical statement here, but in the context of causing brothers to stumble, we should see that Jesus wants us to take this sin with equal seriousness. You say, wait, wait a second. But Jesus isn't talking about causing others to stumble. Look, he says, verse 8, if your hand or your foot causes you to sin, stumble. And in verse 9, if your eye causes you to sin. So what gives? Well, let me ask, let me ask this. What is the sin the stumbling that Jesus is concerned with in this text. It's the sin of causing his little ones to stumble. So the one who causes a brother to stumble actually is himself stumbling, sinning, and thus he is to take that sin, the sin of causing others to stumble, so seriously that he will take radical measures to deal with it. Pornography is a rampant problem in our culture. And I think that most men, most Christian men will agree and go to Matthew 5 and say, you know what, I need to take this sin so seriously in my life that I'm going to take radical measures to cut it off, to get rid of it, to shut it down. Whether it means getting rid of a computer or getting rid of a phone or setting up strict accountability, whatever it may be, I'm going to take strict measures to deal with this. The question is, how many of us have that same mentality about how we treat other people in the church? Are we willing to cut off gossip and dissension with the same type of vehemence that we want to cut off sexual sin? So applying the illustration in Matthew 5 should lead men and women to take radical measures to kill the sin of lust. And likewise, applying the illustration here in Matthew 18 should lead men and women to take radical measures to kill the sin of causing others to stumble. As Jesus stated earlier, And here he will reiterate, the person who causes harm in the church, who stirs up dissension, who causes others to sin, is in danger of hell. His salvation, that person's salvation is suspect, and his soul hangs by a thread. So we need to take this sin seriously, with blood, earnest seriousness. You say, Steve, that's a harsh word. That's a harsh word for a church full of believers. But remember, Jesus is speaking to his disciples In this text alone, he has mentioned the possibility of not entering the kingdom, the preferable state of of having a huge stone drag you to your death, and he has pronounced a woe of judgment. And now we have, in verse 8, better for you to enter life crippled or lame than with two hands or two feet to be thrown into the eternal fire. And then in verse 9, better for you to enter life with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into the hell of fire. These words, by the way, as well as many other from the lips of Jesus, prove the reality of hell and the eternality of hell. A hell that awaits those who consistently, unrepentantly act as stumbling blocks to others instead of stepping stones and thereby show that they truly aren't part of the people of God. That should stir up fear in us. Matthew 10, 28, Jesus says, Do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both body, whose soul and body in hell. And the way I need to apply that, and you can apply it how you need to, is that I don't need to fear man so much. I don't need to fear the people in this church so much that I'm not willing to, and you're not willing to, directly confront sin that's going to cause harm to the body. And that's hard. We've got to fear the right person. We need the fear of the one who has the power 
to hold the millstone and tie it around our neck. Verse 8, if your hand or your foot causes you to sin, cut it off, throw it away. Or if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out, throw it away. And let me make a little parenthetical comment here. I once heard someone say, you people who take the Bible literally don't really take it literally, or you'd have amputated hands. Of course, they were referring to either this text or the Matthew 5 text. So, do we take this passage literally? I say yes. So what? Do, do I advocate amputation for sin? Is this going to be a new, in the, in, the, in the bylaws and constitution come this fall? No. The problem is that we need to understand what it means to take the scriptures literally. This is such an important hermeneutical principle. If you're going to be a literal interpreter of scripture, then you are someone who should read the scriptures in the manner in which the one who wrote it intended it to be read. The true literal interpretation of Scripture interprets the Scripture according to the author's intent. And only when we do that are we arriving at the true interpretation. So what did Jesus mean here? Jesus never meant for anyone to actually amputate body parts. Obviously, Jesus meant for this to be taken hyperbolically. So to read this as a hyperbole is the literal translation. So so to read this as a hyperbole is not to, 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 to symbolize or... To the scriptures is actually to read it literally the way Jesus meant for it to be read. And Jesus' hyperbole is designed to help us see the radical seriousness with which we need to fight and kill sin, which we've already talked about. So friends, we need to take the sin of causing other people to stumble in the church very seriously. We should do battle against it with all that we have. We should cut it off. We should do violence against it. We should mortify it. And we can only do that in humility, and we can only do that really in community. Galatians 6.1, I, I read this passage a lot because I think it has so much to say. Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watching yourselves, lest you too be tempted. Bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. And listen to the humility here. So there's the community. Verse 3, for if anyone thinks he is something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. you got to remember That we're not somebody helping a nobody. We are nobodies helping nobodies in the body of Christ. This means putting others' needs above our own. It means to be open to people showing us us our blind spots that might be causing problems in the church. It means genuinely loving one another and being willing to say difficult things to one another. But in a spirit of love. But not with our love. Our love tank is too shallow. It means the love that God provides through His Holy Spirit. Why does our Lord put forth such dire warnings? He does so because the Father so loves His children, and the chief shepherd so loves His sheep, and the Spirit of God so loves the people of God that He will do all necessary to protect them. And that leads me to our last point this morning. We must have Jesus' heart of sacrificial love. We first see that as Jesus speaks of the special, we see Jesus' love as he speaks of the special role that God has given angels in regards to his children. Verse 10. See that you do not despise one of these little ones, for I tell you that in heaven their angels always see the face of my Father who is in heaven. Now this is somewhat of a mysterious verse. There aren't, there isn't a whole lot in the scriptures about angelic, the angelic world, and, and there's a lot that can't be fully understood and fully explained, and we have to be at peace with that. And this text in particular has been the subject of a lot of speculation, but I think it's pretty simple. Angels are spiritual beings used by God, at least in part, to take care of his children. 
The scriptures in, in Daniel chapter 10 and 12 speak of God assigning angels to nations. And then in, I think um, in Revelation 2 and 3, that it seems to indicate God assigning angels to local churches. So it, it should be no surprise here that we find Jesus speaking of angels being assigned to minister to his children. The word their angels doesn't have to mean that each child of God has their own personal guardian angel, but simply that there exists a group of angels assigned to have watch over God's elect. And that group of angels always sees the face of the Father who is in heaven. These words, see the face of, is actually technical language for someone having access to the king and being able to receive a word from the king. So right now, while we are still in these bodies, there are angels that have access to God on our behalf. Of course, we have access to God clearly through Jesus Christ, but God has also assigned a group of angels to work on our behalf. And this squares well with Hebrews chapter 1, verse 14, which tells us that angels are, quote, ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation. So this says something about how much God loves his children. And this love is the reason that we are not to treat our brothers and sisters poorly. Verse 10 says that we are not to despise, and that means marginalize or to think down upon. We are not to despise one of these little ones, one of God's children, for, for God has this special remnant, uh, regiment of angels assigned to them. So don't despise the one that God loves so much. Then Jesus shifts from angels to an analogy, an analogy he will use later again, later in his ministry. We'll see these words again later on. Verse 12, what do you think? If a man has a hundred sheep and one of them has gone astray, does he not leave the ninety-nine on the mountains and go in search of the one that went astray? And if he finds it, truly I say to you, he rejoices over it more than over the ninety-nine that never went astray. So it is not the will of my Father. Listen to this. It is not the will of my Father who is in heaven that one of these little ones should perish. Jesus is simply showing us the deep, deep love the Father has for us. God loves his little ones, his children, his people. He loves them so much, he will not allow any to go astray, and he'll make sure that none perish, so he will root out sin in the church to protect his children. He's a shepherd, and it is his will to sacrificially love the sheep, to go to any extreme to protect them, to store them, to, to keep them from going astray. And that must be our heart, too. Otherwise, we find ourselves fighting against God. We have to have that love supernaturally pouring out of our heart, 1 John 4, 11. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us, and his love is perfected in us. Now, let me just conclude the sermon. Let me bring it in for a landing this morning uh, by, by saying, if, if these words of our Lord Jesus, I'm speaking to believers first of all, if these words of our Lord Jesus or at least those who claim to be believers, have stirred up fear in you, and you've realized that you are more of a stumbling block than a stepping stone, I invite you to simply repent. 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And let me encourage you to grow in your love for the brothers and in your hatred of division. Romans 12, 9, let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. Love holds fast to what is good. And which means we must be stepping stones, building each other up, and love abhors what is evil, means that God cannot stomach stumbling blocks, and neither should we. So, what are we to do when, when people are causing, are being stumbling blocks, or causing us or others to sin, uh, to, to stumble? 
What do we do when we are being sinned against? Well, that's what Jesus deals with next in the next portion of the text. And we will look at that famous church discipline passage next week. But one final word to those here who are perhaps unbelievers. These warnings of Jesus are real. And if you are not in Christ, you are still in the world. And Jesus says, woe to you. There are two families. The family of the serpent, the strife causers, the stumbling block placers. And there is the family of the Savior. God will vehemently defend the ones in his family. And he will utterly destroy the ones in the other family. But you can be brought into the family of God. Not too long after these words were spoken, the words we read today, Jesus will go to the cross to take the sins of his people. All the sin, including every stumbling block and every causing of others to stumble. And he suffered and died and he rose again, defeating those sins and defeating death. And if you turn from your sin, from your stumbling, and put your faith in him alone for salvation, he can and certainly will transform you from a great stumbling block into a humble stepping stone. Let's pray. Father, I praise you. You are so merciful and so kind and so generous to us. I praise you for verses like 1 John 1, 9. Because if any of us in here have any ounce of honesty, we know we have caused others to stumble from time to time. But if we are truly yours, Father, and I believe this with all my heart, you will stir up a spirit of repentance in us, and we will, as First John says, confess those sins to you. We will turn from those sins, and we can have absolute confidence you will cleanse us from our unrighteousness. So, Father, I pray that you'd help us in here, myself included. Help us to help. I pray that you would bring to mind anything we need to confess, any ways that we have been a hindrance to others in the body. And help us to make a new commitment even now to abhor what is evil, to hold fast to what is good. And Lord, for any in here who are not believers, who have never placed their hope in Christ alone, I pray that you'd help them see that they are living in a system, in a world system, where all they are are stumbling blocks. They are in the wrong family. So Lord, I pray that you would convict that you would stir up a heart of, of genuine turning, repentance, and genuine faith. I pray for your Holy Spirit to do a regenerating work, even now as we pray. So God, we trust you with this time of response. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.